Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, Ezra 2, we're continuing our series through this Old Testament book uh, about the Israelites who were sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, Due to their unfaithfulness to God, God allowed them to go into slavery. Uh, But God, every time he judges us, he gives us a promise, a promise of new creation. We see that throughout the Old Testament. We see it fulfilled in Jesus. And so he promises them that it won't last forever. That This is just a period of discipline and then the people will get to go back and rebuild. Well, we're in that period where the people are coming back and they're rebuilding. And the reason why it matters to us as the church is that it is a great example of the way we are to rebuild the world through Jesus and the way that Jesus is drawing us exiles in and he's calling us home to God. Now, I can guarantee you as we jump into Ezra 2 that none of you are going to find your life verse in this chapter. It is 70 verses of names. You might have wondered, Blake, why don't we have a scripture reader? It's because I don't hate any of you that much to make you read these names. So I'm going to try to read them all today. And here is why. This series is about God doing extraordinary things through ordinary people. And we often want the extraordinary without willing, being willing to push through the ordinary. You know, it's like I, I want to... I want to lift, I want to be kind of a fit person or I want to run a marathon, but I don't want to get up and do the ordinary thing of running every day when it's 15 degrees outside. It's the people who are willing to do the ordinary things that then over time become extraordinary. And this is what God calls us to. And the same is true with our Bible reading. We tend to skip over these parts of the Bible. Uh, the, the Bible to a lot of people is, and myself included, is often viewed as a buffet. You know, you just kind of pick and choose what you want. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen like a kid who... You know, their mom's not watching and they're at the buffet and they go and they fill up their plate with what? They fill it up with dessert. Some of you are like a kid. That's my husband. Uh, And and so what we can see about that is two things. Number one, if you eat all of that, you're going to get what? You're going to get fat and unhealthy. Uh, And also it's a sign of immaturity when when I'm not willing to do anything but the sweet stuff. And as we come to the Bible, it's really easy to read John 316. It's really easy to read some of the letters of Paul. But we come to these parts of the Bible, and God has put them here on purpose and for a purpose. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, The whole Bible is there for God's teaching, for God to teach us and correct us and instruction. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this. I'm going to read these. We're going to talk about it all the way through. We're going to see what we can learn about how God does mission in ordinary ways until I get tired or you all fall asleep or we run out of time. That's what we're going to do today. And I let me tell you, as a pastor... I don't like teaching these texts. I would much rather teach John 3.16. I mean, that's a lot more fun for me. Uh, But as a pastor, I'm called not to be your entertainer. When I go and I preach somewhere else for a week, I can really bring out the the best hits and make everybody laugh and be a great time. But when I'm with you guys, you guys are my flock, and I'm supposed to feed you. I'm supposed to give you what you need, not what you want. And so as we jump in, we're going to see some really cool things about Jesus and how uh, this actually points to Jesus. And we're, we're, I think it's going to be helpful um, as we read God's word. And every time God's word is read and spoken, it does not come back void. The Bible tells us that. So I believe God's going to do something in your hearts and in our church's heart today. But first, let me pray and then we'll jump in and we'll walk through this really ordinary text about the way God uses his people uh, in his extraordinary mission. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I thank you for texts like Ezra chapter 2, um, Jesus, where 
often we kind of glaze our eyes over or we just kind of skip on to the next one. And sometimes we wonder why this is even in here. Was there an OCD person who wrote down too much information? Uh, God, why in the world do, do we need to know the names of these people? And yet, Lord, one of the things it shows us is that you care for your people individually. You know our names. You know our families. And you love us. And so, God, I pray that we would feel that love today. I feel that we would uh, experience your extraordinary peace, your extraordinary uh, comfort and love uh, as we spend time together in your word. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, These now are the people of the providence who came from those captive exiles King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had deported to Babylon. And really, that's the whole point of this text. That frames where we're going. These are the people of God. God wants a people. That's the whole point of the Bible. In fact, right here in this text, verse 1, the whole point of the Bible, from the very beginning to the very end, what God wants is a people. He wants a family who will rule and reign with him. Sometimes people ask, you know, why doesn't God just do things himself? Why does he do it through the church? And the reason is not that God can't do it without our help. The reason is God wants our help. He wants us to be a people who are a family of missionary servants on mission with him. That's been his plan from Genesis through Adam and Eve all the way through when we see in Revelation chapter 21, when Jesus comes back, he's bringing a city with him. And in that city, work will not cease. We will still be working because work is a good thing. Now, a part of the curse is the struggles we have in work, but the working is actually not a part of the curse. God wants us to build things with him. He wants culture and art and music. Those of you who can work with your hands, he wants you to work with your hands and build things. This is a good thing that God has given us, and it's what God wants. So these are the people who are willing to go do the hard work. It's about a 500-mile journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And uh, the people we're about to read about are those who decided to go. Now, verse 2 gives us the people who led this. Let me finish verse 1 first. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Verse 2, they came with, and these are the 12 guys who led it, and the first two are the the, the leaders of it. They came with Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Uh, And then it says, Nehemiah, Sarariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misphar, Bigval, Raham, and Benaiah. There's a 90% chance I'm going to say a cuss word on accident today. (laughs) So please don't put it on social media. We, we see some familiar names in this. We see the name Nehemiah, which is a part of, I told you last week, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. Now, some scholars think this is a different Nehemiah. I don't know. I, I think it's probably there on purpose to make us think about the other Nehemiah. And then you see the name Mordecai, which is a part of the book of Esther. And these all kind of go together. I'm really excited to get to Esther. Esther is an awesome book about an amazing woman that God uses. Um, and we see kind of a, a hint to that as we see Mordecai in this text. But the two leaders are the ones I want to focus on. We have Zerubbabel. Which, if you're looking for a child's name, you, know, you might want to put that at the top of the list. What a name. Zerubbabel, who is the grandson of one of the last kings of Israel. So he's got the right lineage. You know? And uh, more than that, he's, he's one of the great-great-grandsons of King David. So this would have made all the Israelites excited because King David was the one who was promised that from his lineage would come a king who would reign and rule not just over Jerusalem, but over the whole world. And so the people wonder, could it be Zerubbabel that's doing this? And then you got Jeshua. Now, Jeshua in some of your Bibles might be translated Joshua. 
uh, and it works. Uh, it, that's the same thing in Hebrew. It could be Jeshua or Joshua. And uh, what this would do is kind of give all the, the Israelites callbacks to the first time the Israelites were in exile. As they came out of Egypt, out of the slavery, Moses led them. Uh, and then they sin and they do 40 years wandering in the wilderness as exiles until a guy named Joshua comes and leads them into the promised land. So we've got high hopes. And Joshua is also the great-grandson of the last high priest of Israel. So this should be the kind of guys you want to lead what's going on here. But we find out that this mission fails. I'll give you a plot twist at the end. And the reason it fails is because Zerubbabel and Joshua are simply pointing forward to the one who would truly lead the people of God into the promised land. That would truly lead the exiles home. That would truly lead the restoration of the world. And his name is Jesus. Uh, In fact, it's interesting that Israelites were in captivity in Egypt for 435 years. 435 years after this exile period, Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the scene to ultimately lead his people home. And we find in Jesus' genealogy that Zerubbabel is the great, 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 great times 14 generations grandpa of Jesus of Nazareth. And the name Jeshua is actually really cool because if you take the name Jeshua... And you put it in Greek. So the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. New Testament is in Greek. You take the name Yeshua or Joshua and you put it in Greek. It is the name Yeshua. Now, if you take Yeshua and you put it in English, you get Jesus. This is pointing forward in a very direct way to Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Now, I just blew some of your minds because you thought Jesus was a European and you thought his name was actually Jesus. And it's really Yeshua. Uh, But we'll just have to wait on that uh, as we talk about that later. Verse 3, as we keep going, this is where we start to see the, the lay people. This is where we start to see the people coming. This is how God does his work. Ordinary people. So we have Jesus who leads us. I think it's interesting that the leaders, there was how many of them? There was 11. Now, in Nehemiah, it's the same list, and there's 12. So there's either like a copyist error somewhere, uh, or Ezra's trying to teach us something. But there's 12 people. Well, Jesus comes, and what does he do? He calls 12 guys. And out of those 12 guys comes you and I. All of us can trace our lineage if we went back far enough to the beginning of our faith where it's Jesus and those 12 guys. And those 12 guys lead this movement of ordinary people. And so now we're going to read the names of some of these ordinary people. Peeper. This is not good, guys. I can't even say people. I'm about to read a far worse than that. The number of the Israelite men included. And by the way, this is like uh, at Taylor's graduation. I mean, I just sat there forever waiting for one name. Uh, This is going to be a similar type feeling to that. But it's important that they're in here because you can imagine how cool it was for their families to see their family name. You know, if we were all Israelites years after the exile, how cool would it be to hear somebody say, Farley, 63. (laughs) Like, yeah, that's us. We're Farley. That's my family. Okay. I'm trying to pump you guys up for this as much as I can. Pray for me. Verse 3. Parash's descendants, 2,172. We got Shephatiah's descendants, 372. Ariah's descendants, 775. <coughs> Pahoth, Moab's descendants. Jeshua's and Joab's descendants, 2,812. Elam's descendants, 1,254. Zatu's descendants, 945. Zachiah's descendants, 760 of them. Benaiah's descendants, 642. Babel's descendants, 623. Asgad's descendants, 1,222. And Ananakadamaniah's descendants, I almost pulled a hamstring on that one. 666. I'm just saying that sounds pretty demonic. Stay away from the Anamadakarites. Okay. 
Big Vi's descendants, 2056. We got Aiden's descendants, 454. Aider's descendants of Hezekiah, 98. Benaiah's descendants, 323. Joriah's descendants, 112. Hashem's descendants, 223. Gibeah's descendants, 95. That's the beginning as it starts by talking about family names. Now, I found some things interesting about this, believe it or not, uh, because that's what happens in the Bible. If you turn it over in your mind enough, you begin to find things that God is trying to teach us in it. And one of the things I thought about is the descendants. They all come from a person who followed God. And these are the people who are following God from that person's family. And it made me think of, especially those of you who are parents, those of you who have a lineage. How many of your descendants do you want to see following Jesus as you go forward? You know, would would you rather be like Parash, who has 2,172, or Gibar, who has 95? Well, I don't know about you, but if God blesses us and we're able to have children, I want to be like Parash. I want to have 2,172 of my descendants following Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, that's really the greatest legacy you leave. Those of you who are parents, I know it feels like maybe it's, it's your greatest legacy is what you're doing at work or whatever else you're doing. But truly, your greatest legacy, the biggest impact you'll make on the world for good or for e- evil is the lineage that you leave behind. Uh, I was thinking about Jonathan Edwards this week. Jonathan Edwards is uh, one of the, the greatest theologians ever. Uh, in fact, many pastors say that he's America's best theologian. He lived in the 1700s. He was a Puritan. Here's uh, some of Jonathan Edwards' resume. He graduated as the valid Victorian of his class at Yale in 1720. Now, that's good enough. I mean, I couldn't even make it through North Texas. But he graduated valid Victorian at Yale at 16 years old. He was a pastor of a church, one of the biggest ones of his time. He devoted 13 hours a day to studying and writing. He spoke all over the place. He served as a missionary to the Native Americans. He served as an official mentor to students at Yale. He was a key player, along with John Wesley and George Whitfield, in the First Great Awakening. He was the president of Princeton University, and he wrote 73 volumes worth of works. So we say volumes because it's not a book. It's a book. Some of you guys haven't even read 73 books in your life. And he wrote 73 volumes. And you might think, well, that's the greatest thing that he leaves behind. But Jonathan and his wife, Sarah, had 11 kids. And in the year 1900, a guy went back and he traced the lineage from those 11 kids. Where are they now kind of thing? This is the year 1900, so a lot has happened since even this point. But from those 11 kids, here's what came of it. One American vice president... Three senators, three governors, three mayors, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 military officers, over 100 preachers and missionaries, 60 prominent authors, and 80 other public officials. Wow, that's a parash, man. (laughs) That guy left behind a legacy. Now, what was a bigger impact on the world? That him and Sarah left behind. Was it their work? Well, that was important. But it was their children that they left behind. It was the lineage they left behind. And so how do we leave a descendant kind of list like this in our families, if you are a parent? Well, you do it through ordinary ways. Jonathan Edwards, uh, this was what he did every day. He got up at 4 a.m. so he could have time to study uh, the Bible in his own time. And before retiring every night, he and his wife would read the Bible and pray together. For one hour before dinner each evening, Jonathan helped them with their school lessons, and he listened to their adventures of the day. At the conclusion, he prayed a blessing over each child. It's not hard. It's ordinary. It's just being there. You don't think this guy had something else to be doing? He's a president of Princeton, and yet he takes an hour every day to be with his kids, to help them with their schoolwork, and to pray a blessing over them. 
And then he said, uh, he, he has this quote, he says, every house should be a little church. Whenever he left town for other speaking engagements, he always took one of his children with him. And I think this is probably the, the coolest thing about his legacy. Uh, his, es- his daughter Esther once wrote in her diary uh, about her dad. She said, last eve, I had some free discourse with my father. I opened my difficulties to him very freely, and he as freely advised and directed. The conversation has removed some distressing doubts that discouraged me much in my Christian warfare. He gave me some excellent directions that tend to keep my soul near to God, as well as others to be observed in a more public way. What a mercy that I have such a father. I don't know about you, but I want my kids to say that about me. Like when I have problems, I can go to my dad and my dad prays for me. My dad was there and my dad was busy, but he always made time for me. He always made me a priority. This is the ordinary way in which we make a huge impact on our descendants. You know, you don't have to preach a sermon every night in your family devotions. You just got to be there, be a present father or a present mother. And so if you are here today and you're a parent, I want you to know you're doing a good work. And it may not feel like it at times because kids don't listen. And often, you know, you're tired. You don't want to spend time with them. And I get that. I mean, my daughter's a dog and she drives me nuts sometimes, you know. She can't even talk back to me. But you're making a bigger impact in that than you are even in your own career. Now, for some people, parenting isn't an option. Some people can't be parents. uh, And some people choose not to be parents. And both are options uh, that are presented biblically. Jesus, hello, was not a parent. He chose to be celibate his entire life. The Apostle Paul, we believe his wife died, and then he chose to be celibate his whole rest of his life. He didn't have children in the physical sense. And yet, as Christians, we ought to still have descendants. We should have people that we have impacted for the name of Jesus Christ. We should have people in our lives who they can trace their spiritual lineage to us in a way. One of my mentors, Stephen Earp, he says, you know, my goal in life is is not to be the guy on the stage or the guy who's writing the books or doing all of these things that the world sees as amazing. I just want to be in as many stories of the people who do those things. I think what a cool way to think about it. He, He wants as many people to trace their spiritual lineage back to him as possible. He wants to be a parash looking at 2,072 Christians who came from him and followed Jesus Christ. So whether you're a physical parent or you are not a physical parent, this still applies to us. We ought to have descendants that we're following after. This is why sent kids is so important and sent students is so important. It feels like difficult work sometimes, and yet it is probably the most important work we do because that is the future of our church, but it's also the future of the church and what Jesus is going to do in this world. All right, so as we go on to the next pl- t- uh, list of names, uh, the Ezra, the author here, he moves on from talking about the descendants of people to the places of people. And what we see here is that God works through ordinary people in ordinary places to get his mission across. So verse 21 through 35, it says Bethlehem's people. Now you probably know that one. That is where ultimately Jesus Christ would come from. Of these 123 people who went back to Bethlehem, eventually Jesus of Nazareth would be born in this place. Uh, Nedophi's men, Anoth's men, 128. There's 56 from Nedoth. I missed that. I know you guys were wondering. Uh, Asmoth's people, 42. Kirimoth men's Chiripaz and Beeroth's people, 743 of those guys. God bless them. Ramah's and Geba's people, 621. Mike Mess men, 122. Bethel's and Ai's men, 223. Now, why they all can't be that easy to say, I don't know. Verse 29, Nebo's people, 52. Magimosh's people, 156. The other Elam's people, 1,254. <laughs> I don't know, that's funny to me. It's like the other Elam's people. You know? 
Are you with those guys? No, we're the other Elams. <laughs> Harem's people, 320. Lods, Hadids, and Ono's people, 725. Jericho's people, 345. Sinah's people, 3,000 3, rather, 630 people. Now, what's interesting is that some of these towns are big, some of these towns are small, and yet God cares about all of them. And this is something that we see throughout uh, the, God's kingdom, that he has always cared about both the rural areas and the big cities. And when I first started the church planning journey, I got to be honest with you guys, the last place I wanted to plant a church was my hometown. You know, I was like, come on, God, give me something bigger. You know, it's, really, there's like 8,000 people there. I want to go to Miami where there's 8 million people who don't know the name of Jesus. Or send me to New York or send me to Denver, Kansas City. You know, that's where I want to be. And uh, what happened through a, a long line of God wrestling me to the ground, like probably a year and a half of God saying, no, you're going home. No, you're going home. No, you're going home. Is I began to realize that God cares just as much about the 8,000 individuals in Woodward, Oklahoma, as he does the 8 million people in Miami. God is a God of all people in all places. He sends people to different places to reach different people. Is it important that we're in the cities? Absolutely. I have a vision for Ascent that by the time I'm done, however long that is, however long God gives me, it's going to take my whole time here for sure, that I would love to be a part of planting at least 10 churches in the 100 major cities that we have in the United States. 1,000 churches that have some kind of prayer or giving or some, maybe some of you will go and plant churches in these big places because that's important. But it's also important that we have churches in Fargo and Shattuck and Woodward, Oklahoma because God cares about them just as much. Re- really the thing that got me um, as I was thinking about it was that you know, at the time there was a big push to get more church planters out here. They called it the hidden harvest because nobody really wanted to come out here and plant churches. There hadn't been a church plant in Woodward in 20 years, a Baptist church plant that is, in 20 years. And uh, so, you know, my thought was, that's cool, my hometown. Yeah, when I plant the church in a big city, one day we'll send people there. (laughs) Uh, But as I began to think about it, as God began to work my heart, I, I came to the conclusion that this was for me to plant because... I knew the faces of people who were far from God. I had people in my family who were far from God. And nobody else was going to love this place as much as I was going to love this place. Honestly, I thought of my grandpa Harvey, uh, who died this past year. Uh, he, he always said that you know, he never felt comfortable in a church. He loved God, but he, always, he hated the hypocrites. and you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't want to be a part of a church like that. And I thought, you know, I would love to plan a church where people like that felt comfortable. I'd love to plant a church where people like that could come in and not be judged and be welcome for who they are. And that's exactly what God did. He called it. And you guys are a part of that today because of that calling that God stirred up in Taylor and I's heart. And now it's way beyond me. I mean, God was going to do what God was going to do without me. But I'm just so grateful that I got to be a part of it. That God cares about all of these cities, no matter how big or how small they are. So God does his work through ordinary people in ordinary places. And then he does ordinary work. Verse 36 on through, uh, I think like verse 50 something, he's going to tell us about the different roles that these people had. Verse 36, the priest included Judiah's descendants of the house of Jeshua, 973. Imner's descendants, they are shadowing my Bible, 1,052. Pashar's descendants, 1,247. And Haram's descendants, 1,017. So we have the priests. These are the guys who you come to, and they're the intermediator between you and God. Now, the Levites are a subset of this. The Levites included Jeshua's son, Kadamel's descendants, and Hodavah's descendants, 74. 
uh, a tip. If you're ever reading a text like this, you just say it loud and confident, and nobody knows you don't know what you're talking about. I am butchering these names. Verse 41. The seniors included Asaph's descendants, 128. The seniors, uh, Asaph is actually pretty popular in the Psalms. A lot of the Psalms are addressed to the song leader Asaph. Molly is our Asaph. Uh, Verse 42, the gatekeepers, it's like the security guards, you know, the Jerusalem bouncers. Descendants included Shalaman's descendants, Alter's descendants, Talmon's descendants, Akabob's descendants, Hatta's descendants, Shobali's descendants. In all, 139. The temple servants included Zihah's descendants, Huzfah's descendants, Taboth's descendants, Kiro's descendants, Shisha's descendants, Paddan's descendants, Lebanon's descendants, Hagabah's descendants, Acab's descendants, Hagabah's descendants, Shalomah's descendants, Hinnom's descendants. You know, I haven't felt like this since I ran a half marathon. The same voice is going in my head. Blake, just keep going. You can make it. You can make it. Verse 47, Gidadel's descendants, Skerhar's descendants, Rala's descendants, Rezin's descendants, Nakoda's descendants, Gazima's descendants, Uzzah's descendants, Pishash's descendants, Bezel's descendants, Ananesh's descendants, Minima's descendants, Nephesus' descendants, Backbuck's descendants. Okay, that's the coolest name. <laughs> like, you don't even have to change your gamer name. You know, you're Backbuck. Okay. Heroth's descendants, Herother's descendants, not to be confused with Basilos' descendants, or Mahadia's descendants, Harsh's descendants, Barco's descendants, Sisiria's descendants. That's not very cool. Sissy. Timah's descendants, Nezah's descendants, Hadaphah's descendants, the descendants of Solomon's servants. I know, you couldn't wait till we got to this part. Here we are. And these are included. Sodadah's descendants, Hazaroth's descendants, Perdadah's descendants, Jelah's descendants, Darkon's descendants. That's another cool one. Dark on and... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Stay focused. Gidadel's descendants. Shephetai's descendants. Hidatel's descendants. Pokerah Hathabah's descendants. <laughs> Can you imagine learning that in kindergarten? What's your name, little guy? <laughs> no. <laughs> and Ami's descendants. All the temple servants and the descendants of Solomon's servants... 392. All those names, and there's only 392 in the whole thing. These are the people who are working. They're doing the jobs. Each of those people had different roles. And what I love about our church is we have a high percentage of people who are involved in the ministry of Ascent. You guys don't just come and set. You're a part of what we are doing. And I love that about our church. And we all have different gifts and different skills, and we put those to use. And one of the things I'm really passionate about is making sure you know that my gift is just one of the small pieces of all the gifts. Because I, I kind of grew up thinking that, thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, it's bad when you know the guy needs water. Oh, praise Jesus. He's our living water. Uh, I don't even remember where I was. Okay, ascent. Yeah, uh, using our different gifts and skills. So my, I kind of grew up thinking that you know, the only gifts you had was the pastor uh, or the seniors. And other than that, you kind of sat there and you gave money every once in a while. Now, uh, I saw my pastor preach texts like this, and I was like, I don't want to be one of those. Which maybe is what you're thinking today as you see me reading these names uh, and straining as I preach through this message. Uh, and I certainly couldn't sing. If I sang, everybody would leave. It'd be anti-God's mission. You know, no people would come one time and be like, we're never going again to be a part of what those people are doing. But what we see in the Bible is that there is so much work that goes on that is important to God's kingdom that nobody even knows about. The temple servants did really the grunt work that nobody thought about. And 
In our kind of context, we have that. You know, it's the people who are back in Ascent Kids doing way more important work, because I just talked about the descendants than what I'm doing here, and yet it's kind of an unthanked job. We think about the people at production, who you don't think about them until they mess up. You know, it's like everything can go smooth. We don't think about production. Something doesn't go smooth, you're like, who's running that computer? Where are they? That, that's the kind of thankless job that there is. And it doesn't just include what we do in this gathering, because we're the people of God, not just here. We gather here, but we go out and we serve. So gifts of hospitality are so important to the kingdom of God. You know, making good cookies is a spiritual gift. Can I get an amen? Amen. Inviting people into your home is really important to the mission of God. I make a joke about that, but I'm serious. These things all really matter as far as living our faith out outside of these walls. And we all have a piece to play in God's mission. There's really two sides to God's mission. There is the, the calling the exiles home to God, which is the preaching of the gospel. You know, I want to preach the gospel, tell you that God has a way to make you a son or a daughter of God, that you are a sinner and Jesus came to die for that sin so that you might be a, a son or a daughter of God. That's really important. But we can't just focus on that because Jesus also says he's bringing his kingdom to bear. And this is where we are, the feeding of the poor. We're with those who we're giving water to those who need drink. We're, we're bringing God's kingdom to this earth so that people not only hear about Jesus, but they experience Jesus. There's two sides to it. Uh, and Martin Luther is a famous theologian, and he says the church is often like a drunk man trying to get on a horse. <laughs> they, they get up and they fall over on one side and then they get up and they fall over on the other side. It's really hard to find the balance between those two things. And I want us to continue to be a church who does both. And we, we, we represent Jesus. Now I'm talking about Jesus and hopefully bringing him in a new light so that you can see how good and wonderful he truly is. But we also represent Jesus. Whereas people want to know what the love of God is like, they shouldn't have to look too far. They can look at the way those people at Ascent love each other and the way those people at Ascent love our community. The people would say, you know what, I don't believe what those guys believe. I would never come and listen to a guy talk this long about a whole bunch of Hebrew names. But I'm sure glad that they're in our community. Because they make a powerful difference. It it takes all of us for that to be true. Now, we've talked about some ordinary things. As we jump into these next few verses, we're going to talk about our extraordinary Savior. Verse 59. The following are those who came from Tel Mala, Tel Harsha, Terub, Aden, and Emmer, but were unable to prove their ancestral families and their lineage were Israelites. Della's descendants... Tobiah's descendants, Nakoda's descendants, 652. Now, one of the reasons why there is so many names here is because it was really important for the the Jewish people to prove their ancestral background, that they wanted the pure Jewish people to be building this temple. We'll see later on that they don't even allow Gentiles to help with the building. Jesus comes and he changes that. He flips that on its head. He says, just because you're Jewish by lineage doesn't get you anything. What you need is to be born again under my lineage. I love what John the Baptist says to uh, the Pharisees. These are the guys who, you know, they, they would have been on this list. They would have been on the top of the list. Verse 7, it says, this is Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 and 9. It says, when he saw the Pharisees, John the Baptist, and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? John the Baptist was an intense preacher. Verse 8, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. In other words, Jesus has got his own family, and you can be ethnically Jewish and not be of God. Or you can be a Gentile 
who is not of the right ethnicity like these guys. You can't prove your ancestral history, and yet I am a son of Israel just as much as anybody else, which is really kind of hard to believe. But it's true that Jesus had made this way. And what this means for those of us here is that if you come from a church family, it doesn't really buy you anything. You know, you can come from Jonathan Edwards' family, but you've still got to have your own relationship with Jesus. One day I'll have kids, and I pray that they love Jesus, and, and I pray that they follow Jesus, but ultimately that'll be their choice. Just because they're the pastor's son doesn't mean anything to Jesus. We have to come to the place where we adore Jesus ourselves, where we find him. I was uh, listening to a story this week from an archbishop uh, from a while back, an archbishop in, in uh, one of the European countries. And he talked about these three boys who were church kids. And uh, they were, you know, they kind of made fun of the church. They, they didn't really want to believe it themselves. And so they, they made up this thing where, hey, we're going to go to the priest and do a confession. And we'll just confess the most raunchy, worst things we can think of. And, you know, it'd be a joke to get at the priest. Well, two of the friends backed out. But there's this one kid. There's always that one kid. Uh, who said, I am, I'm going I'm to do it. And he went into the confession booth and he just started saying the worst things to the priest. And the priest said, young man, I want you to go out in the, in the corridor and, and look. Uh, and what would have been in this church is, because in Catholic churches, they have the cross, but they have Jesus on the cross. So there would have been this huge kind of cross with a guy on it. And he said, I want you to go and I want you to look at that. And I want you to say, I did all of that. And I don't even care what you did for me. And the kid said, okay. He ran out there and the first time he said, I did all of that and I don't even care what you did for me. And he went back and the priest said, do it again. And he went back and did it again. And he said the third time he went back, he was looking at Jesus on the cross and it hit him. He said, I did all of that and I don't. And he said he just began to bawl. Because when you view our Savior and what he's done for us, you can't help but to have an extraordinary type of love for the way he extraordinarily loved us. And in that moment, this kid who grew up in the church became a Christ follower because he believed Jesus for himself. And the archbishop kind of ended by saying, I know this story because I was that boy. I was that boy who did that. And it was in that moment that he saw Jesus for who he really was. Now, I'm, I'm telling you that today because that's what we have to get to. It doesn't matter how much you come to church. It doesn't matter how much your parents come to church. It doesn't matter if you come from a bad family or a good family. You have to fall in love with the person of Jesus. You have to believe the gospel of Jesus counts for you and take on the posture of follower yourself. And the only way that happens is not through ordinary means at all. It's through extraordinary means. Through the means of God himself interjecting himself into human history, stepping onto the stage and living the righteous life you could never live. And then going to the cross and dying the death we deserve to die. Bloody, beaten, and bruised for my name to be in the book of life. For me to be an adopted son of God. This is the grace of Jesus. When we experience that grace, the only result can be an overflowing of generosity towards God. An overflowing of extraordinary generosity because of the generosity we've experienced from Jesus. And that's where this text ends. And Molly, if you want to go ahead and come up, I'm slowly landing the plane. Verse 61 and from the descendants of the priest, the descendants of Hobiah, the descendants of Hakaz, the descendants of Barzeli, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzeli, the Gideonite, who bore their name. These searched for their entries and their genealogical record, but they could not be found, as they were disqualified from. The, so they were disqualified from the priesthood. This would have been me. 
uh, me and Taylor, you know, Blake, where did you put the papers? <laughs> and I, w- I wouldn't have had my proper identification. Uh, I remember one time we, uh, we went to a knife show right after we got married because you, you got a free cruise out of the deal. So we went to this knife show. This guy, I was like, I'm not going to buy no knives. What are you talking about? You know? Those knives were awesome. Okay, This guy's like cutting oranges and all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't even know what I need that for, but sign me up. You know, I'm, I wanted to spend money. And before Taylor's like, we're not buying anything. We're not buying anything. We're not buying anything. And I wanted to buy everything in the place by the time he finished his presentation. She was bored stiff like some of you are as I read these names. But what we got out of it was a cruise. I didn't get any knives, unfortunately. But we got a cruise. We got a sheet of the cruise. Well, mistake number one in our marriage is Taylor entrusted me with the sheet where we got the cruise. So you can imagine what happened. I, I lost the sheet. <laughs> I didn't have it. Now, here's what's really good news about Jesus. He is the one who's in charge of your sheet. He is the one in charge of that you are a part of the family of God. He is faithful even when we are not faithful. Our names are written in the book of life, not based upon what we've done, but based upon what he has done. This is really good. He's our advocate. So that we stand in the courtrooms of God. Our innocence or our guilt verdict is not dependent upon who we are and what we've done. It's dependent upon what Jesus of Nazareth has done for us. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you ordinarily show up in ordinary ways. God, as we look at this text that some of us would probably just look right over. And honestly, as the preacher, I kind of just wanted to skip to chapter 3. But Jesus, even in this text, we see your work through Jesus and through us. God, I'm grateful that you allow us ordinary people to be a part of your extraordinary plan to save the world. God, I pray that we would leave here with a new sense of purpose. And God, I pray maybe for the first time somebody would gaze upon you for the first time and understand what you did for them. They would fall in love with you, Jesus. Because when we fall in love with you, the rest kind of falls into place the way it's supposed to. Jesus, you are a good, good Savior. If you would take about 20 seconds with your eyes closed and heads down and just ask the Holy Spirit what he might be saying to you through this message. God, pray that you'd give us the courage to obey whatever you've commanded us to do. Pray that you'd work the desire and the will within us. That you'd make it happen through us, your servants. Jesus, we love you. Amen. If you would, friends, stand and let's worship King Jesus. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.